All right. Well, thank you so much to our praise team leading us in worship. Um, it's not just a prelude to the message. Uh, I want us to really understand why it is that we sing these songs of, of praise to the Lord. Uh, yes, it is to center our attention upon our Savior. It's to, it's to you know, sort of get rid of all the things in our life that are dragging us down and concentrate on Him. But these songs stand alone. They're truth. And so we're singing truth back to the Lord. And so those are in conjunction with what we want to consider today in the Word of God. And yes, they are somewhat preparatory, but they are truth. And we're singing truth to our Savior So we want to learn more about him and this encounter that he had with Nicodemus. We began last week by looking at verses 1 through 8. Today, we're going to look at verses 9 through 21 of John chapter 3. And so let me encourage you to turn there. John chapter 3, verses 9 through 21 will be our text today. Well, it's uh, really hard for me to think about it, but some 16 years ago now, Uh, Kathy and I celebrated our 20-year anniversary by taking a cruise to the Caribbean. And one of our stops was in Ochos Rios, Jamaica, where we climbed the famous Duns River Falls. After we did that, we had a little extra time before we needed to reboard the ship. And so we ventured into the city, and we found a collection of stores. And there was a store that caught my eye. And if you know me, you know why. The name of the store was Everything is $10. And so I said, Kathy, that's got our name on it. Let's go in there and let's see what they've got. So we went into the store. We looked around. We found a bunch of things that would make great gifts for our kids. And so we took an armful of stuff up to the counter. I think we maybe had six or seven things that we had picked out. So we go up to the counter, and this guy's sitting there. He doesn't even take the items and look at them. He just looks at them in my arms, and he says, that'll be $210. And I said, whoa, wait a minute here. The name of your store is Everything is $10. And he said, well, some things are and some things aren't. (laughs) It was just a reminder then, and it's a reminder today, that we live in a world that is shockingly deceptive. Deception is now normal. People will look you right in the eye and lie to you. People will just make up stuff and try to sell it as it really happened. And sadly, that kind of behavior can spill into the church. Now, more than ever, people of God must exercise wisdom and discernment and test everything by the Word of God. The Apostle Paul warns about deception in Galatians 6, verses 7 through 8, when he said, "'Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap.'" For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And our theme today is that last phrase concerning eternal life. And so as we continue on in John chapter 3 and our examination of this encounter between Jesus and this man by the name of Nicodemus, we find that Nicodemus was not only a casualty of deception, He was a perpetuator of deception. How do we know that? Well, we know from the text that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were militant law keepers. So Nicodemus no doubt had been deceived by religious types, but he bought the lie and he became a culpable perpetuator of deception. And such behavior repeatedly received the strongest of rebukes from Jesus during his three-year public ministry even to the point of Jesus calling the Pharisees, as we saw last week, hypocrites, literally stage actors. The actors of those days would would act with a mask on. And so literally, as we think about the Pharisees and the hypocritical nature of the Pharisees, they're literally stage actors with masks. Hypocrites, Jesus called them. Whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, But on the inside, they're dead men's bones. And so as I said, we looked at verses 1 through 8 last week. This week we want to examine uh, verses 9 through 21 
And we want to consider the rest of the story. Look with me at John 3 and verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony? If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but the Son of Man. No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God." Well, some of you old-timers remember Paul Harvey and his uh, famous radio program, The Rest of the Story. It was very compelling. I remember listening to it often when I was in my car. Paul Harvey, the man with the golden voice, would tell a story, and then he'd hold back some key element of the story, usually the name of some well-known person, only to be told at the end. And this is essentially what we find here as Jesus explains to Nicodemus that he alone is the source of eternal life. Eternal life is not found in religion. Eternal life is not found in good works. Eternal life, as we'll see today, is found only in Jesus. Only in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. The one sent from God to come to the earth to do what man could not do for himself. Eternal life is found in Jesus, and that's what he wants to communicate to this Pharisee, this uh, ruler of the Jews, this man who was a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, this man who would have been steeped in tradition and would know that passage that Grady read for us this morning out of Leviticus. Jesus Christ is the only source of eternal life. And so before we dig into our text for today, I think it'd be helpful to take a little time to examine what Jesus means by eternal life. The the gift of eternal life comes to those who believe in Jesus Christ, who according to John 11, 25, is the resurrection and the life. And the fact that this life is eternal indicates that it's it's a perpetual life. It goes on and on and on with no end. But if that is the only way we view eternal life, our definition falls woefully short. The word for eternal life carries the idea of quality as well as quantity. In fact, eternal life is not really intended to be the point or to point to the future. In other words, the point of what Jesus is sharing to Nicodemus is those who are born again don't have to wait for eternal life because it's not something that starts when they die. Instead, eternal life begins the moment a person exercises faith in Jesus Christ. Look down to verse 36 of chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has, has, present tense in the English, present tense in the Greek, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And so the focus of eternal life is not on our future. In other words, it's not just fire insurance. You've heard that term when people talk about what salvation is. And people like me, when I was a child, that's why I said the words after the pastor when he said, repeat after me, because he goes, do you want to go to hell? (laughs) I'm five years old. Everything I've heard about hell is really bad. 
Do I want to go to hell as a five-year-old? No. Okay, repeat after me. Say these words. And so I did. And for a number of years, I had been convinced I was a Christian, but I was not a Christian. The focus of eternal life is not on our future, but it is our current standing in Christ. So with that in mind, we see here in verses 9 through 21 that Jesus lays out the rest of the story. So let me give you our outline for this text, and then we'll go through it, okay? So first, here in verses 9 through 15, we will find the proof of Nicodemus' unbelief. The proof of Nicodemus' unbelief. Second, in verse 16a, we will find the purpose behind God's offer of salvation. And then third, in verses 16b through 20, we're going to find the promise of eternal life to all who believe. And then fourth, and finally, in verse 21, we'll find the practice of those who have been born again. So let's take a look at the rest of the story. And we want to do so by first looking at the proof of Nicodemus' unbelief. Again, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So Nicodemus continues to show his hand here. Even after all that Jesus had taken the time to share with him, he affirms his unbelief by saying, how can these things be? But Jesus doesn't give up on him. Jesus continues to engage him by flipping the script and asking him a question. Jesus says, if you're the teacher of Israel, how is it that you do not understand these things? Of course, Jesus knows why Nicodemus didn't understand what he was saying. It's because Nicodemus is religious but he was lost. He's like so many people today. They're so caught up in religion, but they have no relationship with Jesus. And by the way, this is also a backhanded condemnation of the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel because Nicodemus is one of their leaders. But mostly, Jesus is trying to make the point with Nicodemus that there's something dramatically wrong with his spiritual condition. See, the cold hard reality is Nicodemus is unregenerate. His answers to Jesus are reflective of his condition. In other words, he hasn't yet experienced the new birth. He possesses a heart of stone, which we considered last week in Ezekiel chapter 36. Like all men, Nicodemus needed to be born again. Literally, if you remember, born from above right? Born from above. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus goes on to say to Nicodemus that your unbelief is on you. Your unbelief is on you. You choose not to accept the truth of what we're saying. And I think this truth is worth explaining a little bit more this morning. The the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, right? He's in complete control of all things. The famous quote from R.C. Sproul is, and we've said it many times before, that there's not a random molecule in the universe. God is completely in control of all things. He is sovereign over all. It is a theme of Scripture that God is sovereign over all things. But his sovereignty doesn't negate man's culpability for his sin and his responsibility to believe in Christ. And so we do not believe and nor do we teach in fatalism. I read a book one time, I don't remember the name of it, Bruce, you could probably help me with this. It's uh, 
uh, Spurgeon, is Spurgeon's book on hyper-Calvinism, okay? And basically, hyper-Calvinism is the idea that God's sovereign, so why do we need to do anything? Why do we need to pray? If God's already got things already considered and worked out for the future, why should we pray? If God is sovereign in all things, including salvation, why should we even witness? Aren't they going to come get saved anyways? And so you see the idea, that's a fatalistic uh, system that is not biblical. It's antithetical to Scripture. If a man rejects Christ, that is on him. That is not on Jesus. And of course, the rejection that we're speaking of here is the default position of every man, woman, and child, right? Romans 5, 12 reminds us that everyone has inherited a sin nature from Adam because Adam was man's representative on the earth. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Theologians call that federal headship. So man is a sinner by nature and a sinner by commission. Romans 3.10 confirms this when Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as an Old Testament scholar, Nicodemus should have known all of that because Leviticus 5.17 says, if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. And so what is the result of man's sin? And again, Nicodemus should know this because Ezekiel 18 and verse 20 says, the soul that sins, it shall die. And so it can't get more descriptive than how the apostle Paul describes man's spiritual condition in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. There Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. The Greek word for dead is nekros. It means dead. (laughs) Lifeless. Without life. As a pastor, I have been in the room with many who were a part of our congregation who have died. Kathy and I have routinely gotten phone calls in the middle of the night from family members letting us know that so-and-so had passed away. Would you please come up to the hospital? So I wipe the sleep out of my eyes. I clean up a little bit. I get dressed, and then I go up to the hospital, and I'm in the room with a person who I knew very well who is dead lifeless, physically dead. There's nothing that I can do to help that family to bring that person back to life. He is physically dead. There's no hope for the physically dead, but there's hope for the spiritually dead. The spiritually dead can have eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ. And so all of this to say that at the time of this encounter, Nicodemus was simply acting within his nature. Okay, This conversation is a revealer as to his true heart condition. He had a lifeless soul, no spiritual life, and with it came no spiritual understanding. He needed to be born again. He needed to be born from above. He needed the Holy Spirit of God to regenerate his cold, dead heart. Nicodemus needed to place his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. As Jesus continues to engage Nicodemus, we find that Jesus sets himself apart from every other man, woman, and child. Notice what he says here in verse 13. He he says that he's the only one He's the only one who has descended from heaven and then ascended back into heaven. The only one. As we move into verses 14 and 15, Jesus is using an illustration to point Nicodemus to the way of eternal life. This this is fascinating. Verse 14. If you don't know the story, you think it's out of place. 
Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So let's look at that story. Go back to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Why does Jesus use the illustration back in Numbers 21? Because Nicodemus was an Old Testament scholar. Nicodemus would know the law. He would know the Old Testament like the back of his hand. And so Jesus is using an Old Testament illustration here to illustrate New Testament truth. So Numbers 21, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law. Numbers 21 Verses 5 through 9. So here's the illustration that Jesus is using with Nicodemus here. Numbers 21, beginning with verse 5. So the people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we are disgusted with this miserable food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And so the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord that he will remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and put it on a flagpole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent put it on the flagpole, and it came about that if a serpent bit someone and he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Pretty cool story. So what's Jesus' point? Well, he's telling Nicodemus that just as God provided a way of physical life for those who had been bitten by the fiery serpents, he's provided a way of eternal life for those bitten with sin. And so we see the parallel here, right? Just as all the snake-bitten Israelites who looked up at the bronze serpent were physically healed, those who look upon and believe in Jesus will be spiritually healed. And as a result, they will receive eternal life. And so this brings us then to the second part of the rest of the story, and it's the purpose behind God's offer of salvation. And we see this here in the first part of verse 16. For God so loved the world. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible. Christians and non-Christians alike can quote it. I heard it all the time from my friends who were unregenerate, not believers. They knew this verse. People know this verse. It's probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. As sinners, God owes sinful man nothing but eternal death. Romans 6.23 says just that. For the wages of sin is death. Because every man has violated the, the law and the holy character of God, he is deserving of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. The, the news is as bleak as it can get. But God loves sinners. Ephesians 2, 4 through 8 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. This is at the heart of the good news of the gospel. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is dead in his sins, and his trespasses. He's spiritually dead, but he's standing before Jesus. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, the one who was sent from God to come to the earth to die in the place of sinners to provide eternal life for sinners like Nicodemus and us. He's standing right there. He's standing right there. Jesus says, You must be born again. 
You must be born again. And then he gets to the heart of the gospel message. And it's about him. It's about Jesus. The gospel is Jesus and what he's provided for us. And he begins to talk about the love that God has for this world. And this is where it all starts to come together. God's sole purpose in offering salvation to all who believe in Jesus is love. Love. The definition of love. For God so loved the world. Hey, not works, not human merit, not the keeping of laws, which Nicodemus would have been really good at. God's love is displayed through the extension of his grace and mercy to all who believe in Jesus. He's standing right before Nicodemus. Now we're getting somewhere, right? Romans 5, 8. For God commends his love toward us in that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. The Greek word for love in all of the passages that I just referenced is agape. It's used 51 times in the Gospel of John, who, by the way, was the apostle that Jesus loved, Jesus agaped. There are other Greek words in the New Testament for romantic love or friendship love, but this word agape, agapao in the verb form, describes the love that God has for the world. It's defined as a faithful, deeply committed kind of love. It's sacrificial in nature. So when Kathy and I got married back in the Dark Ages, 1987, we met in 1986 in June. We got married in June of 1987. And the pastor preached a message on God's love for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I already have sweat rings going down to my waist in my gray tuxedo. I am, the, the, the overwhelming nature of this commitment that I was making to my wife had, had caused me to sweat. I am standing before this beautiful woman that I have grown to love more than any other human on the planet. And I'm contemplating what this kind of love is really like. What am I getting myself into? How many times do we just say, love you? Hey, love you. Just talked to my daughter on the phone the other day. She called. I love her. Uh, she called. She, she, she just said, hey, dad, I hadn't talked to you in a couple of days. Just wanted to call and see how you're doing. So we talked a little bit. They got a new dog. We talked about that. We talked about all kinds of little things. And at the end, she goes, Dad, I love you. I said, Honey, I love you too. When she said that to me, and when I said that to her, what we meant was we are deeply committed to one another. I sacrificially love my daughter just like she sacrificially loves me. This is the kind of love that is being described here for us when it says, so God loved the world. God loved the world. It's agape. So keep your finger there real quickly. Let's just go to 1 Corinthians 13, because if we want to find out what this word really is and what it really means, we find it. We find it right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor... And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Verse 4. I look up and I see those of you in our congregation that stood before me as I read these words. There's a whole bunch of you. 
in the room. You might have had sweat rings that day too. You remember these words? Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. And it is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into an account, take into account a wrong suffered. There's the cancel culture thrown out the window. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. And then at the end, which if the people at Corinth didn't get it yet, verse 13, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the kind of love that Jesus said that we are to have for one another. When Jesus was asked by the Pharisee in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered and said, you are to love, agape, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love, agape, your neighbor as yourself. Later on in the Gospel of John, we'll look at chapter 15, and Jesus will say this, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. How are we to love one another? In the same way that he loved us. Greater love has no one than this, than a person will lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, because all things that I have heard from my Father, and have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. I think there's an agape shortage in the world. Would you agree? Because The world's redefined love. Love to the world is tolerance, right? If you love somebody, then you'll let them be what they want to be. If you love somebody, then let them express themselves in any way that they want. That's not love. That's not love. That's not the definition of love. That's not the kind of love that we're to have for one another. Jesus said, those whom he loves, he disciplines. Hmm. So discipline can be a part of love. Why? Because isn't the love that we just considered beyond a feeling? beyond an emotional attachment, beyond a friendship. That's not the kind of love that we're commanded to have for one another. The kind of love that we're commanded to have for one another is sacrificial in nature. It's putting the other person before ourselves. What is best for the other person? If the other person is in sin and we let them stay in their sin, we don't love them. We don't care about them. That's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. That's not the kind of love that God has for the world. And so this brings us to this word, world, in our text. It's the Greek word cosmos. It's used 186 times in the New Testament and more than 70 times in the Gospel of John. So two of the words that are used the most in the Gospel of John are love and world. Love and world. And here they're paired together. Now, there are numerous different meanings for this same Greek word that's translated world. And if I had time, and I wanted to do this, but I don't have time, I'd take you around the Scriptures and show you all the different ways that this word cosmos is used. 
translated world here. But let me just give you one example so you understand what I'm, what I'm saying. So here's an example of the variety of usage of the Greek word cosmos. 1 John 2.15, again, written by the same apostle, Apostle John. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know the verse, right? Pastor Flip mentioned it last week in his Sunday school class. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that sounds pretty contradictory to what we just read. For God so loved the world. Wait a minute. God loves the world, but we're not to love the world. So the word world can't be used in the same way in both of those verses because that's contradictory. If God loves the world, surely we are to love the things that he loves. But here in 1 John 2.15, he says that we're not to love the world. So let me give you a principle of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study or the, uh, the study of the interpretation of texts, okay? So we have a certain hermeneutic, a normal, literal, grammatical, historical approach to the Bible. We come to the Bible, we read it as is. If there are similes and metaphors and other figures of speech, we recognize that. Otherwise, we take it literally. And so a principle of hermeneutics is when there are multiple meanings to a Greek word, it's the context that determines the meaning, okay? I hope that's helpful for you because we see this often in Scripture, where the same word is used and there appears to be different meanings associated with it. So how do we know what meaning he's referring to? It's the context of the passage that determines the meaning. In in 1 John 2.15, John is using the word world to refer to the world system. The world system that's operated by Satan himself. We're not to love the world system. But John is using world here in John 3.16 in a different way. It's not the same way. John is sharing that God so loved, God agape, the world, cosmos, meaning mankind in a general sense, that he sent his only begotten son to provide eternal life to all who would believe in Jesus. This brings us then to number three and the promise of eternal life to all who believe. First the proof, second the purpose, now the promise of eternal life to all who believe. Look at the second part of verse 16. Again, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So a good Bible student would immediately drill down on this word believe, right? If this is at the heart of receiving eternal life, then we got to know what believe means, right? Well, it's pistuo in the Greek, pistuo in the Greek. And so we need to ask the question, believe in what or believe in who? If eternal life is at stake, we got to understand what this word believe means. Pistuo means to place your full confidence and trust in something or someone. To place your full confidence and trust in something or someone. It's akin to faith. So when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? What did they say? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Pistuo, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
So for someone to receive eternal life, they must believe in and on the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember the context here in John chapter 3. Jesus is standing before Nicodemus, and he's explained to him how he can avoid perishing, but have eternal life. Verse 17 says that God didn't send Jesus into the world, meaning the sinful world of humanity, to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Again, Jesus is the only hope for the world. So get this, those who believe will not be judged, he says, but those who do not believe will be judged. In fact, he says that that's their default position until they believe they are under the judgment of God. You see the gravity of all this? They're not just our neighbors. They're not just the people who live in the houses next to us. Our office mates are not just people that occupy a similar workspace. Our family members are not just people who are biologically related to us. Eternal life is at stake. The power source is the gospel. Jesus is the only hope. Here in verse 19, John says that men naturally gravitate toward the darkness because their deeds are evil. My grandparents used to tell the story of them going to bed at night and waking up the next day and their house had been totally ransacked and pilfered. My grandpa, you could stand right up next to him and say, hey, grandpa, he wouldn't hear you. My grandma was similar. So they're in bed they're sleeping. Someone or someone's broke into the house and stole all kinds of stuff from them. All of my grandpa's guns, all of his knives, all of his fishing equipment. Stole it all. Why did they come in under the cover of darkness? Because if they tried to do that during the day, people might see them. My grandparents are awake during the day. People act out in the darkness because their deeds are evil. But in contrast, I love the contrast in John and in 1 John. In contrast, Jesus is the light of the world. He shines light in the darkness. And this is what John the Baptist said about Jesus, that this is the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And here Jesus affirms it about himself. And he goes on to say that everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light in fear that his deeds will be exposed. You know what's interesting is Jesus was referred to as the light of the world and then later we as his people are referred to as lights of the world. You see what I mean? So we talked about all those relationship issues that we have, right? We're the light. We're the light to those people in the workplace, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and so on. We are the light that exposes the darkness. And all of this leads us then to to verse 21 and the practice of those who have been born again. The practice. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. When a person is born again, there is a dramatic change that occurs. It occurs on the inside. And it's manifested on the outside. Old things have passed away. We used to be in darkness, but now we're in the light. Behold, all things become new. So while one who is born again is not made perfect, they're given a new nature and and declared righteous before holy God. And they're recipients then of eternal life, perpetual life, of the abundant life 
that God offers through Christ. Truth is important to them in a way that it wasn't before. You know, a true believer in Jesus will seek to practice the truth. Again, John wrote, 1 John, same John. He says in chapter 3, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, in other words, why God sent Jesus to the earth, was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now, later he says that if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth's not in you. So he's not talking about sinless perfection on the earth. He's talking about the tenor of your life, the tenor of my life. Are we a regular practicer of sin if that's who we are? Do we continue to, to just abound in sin over and over and over again? It's a proof we're not a Christian. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. That's the change. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, agape, his brother. The cool thing about this story is Nicodemus starts with major confusion, right? Then later we'll see that it leads to conviction and then ultimately to conversion. And we'll look at his conversion account when we get to chapter 7 and chapter 19. So, I mean, the, the, the big pink elephant in the room, the question that we all must answer is the question that was posed to Nicodemus by Jesus, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you placed your faith, have you believed, pistuo, in Jesus and in him alone? Believed in what? Believed in who Jesus is right? He's the Messiah, the sinless Son of God. Nicodemus would not be looking at Jesus in that way. And so something's going to have to change, and we'll see that it does later in the Gospel of John. Something's going to have to change because his view of Jesus is not the biblical view of the sinless Son of God. At this moment, he's still unregenerate. And so we ask the question, have you placed your belief in who he is and what he has done on your behalf? The demons believe and they shudder. The demons know that he is the sinless son of God, but the demons rejected him, went off with Satan, a third of them, never to be holy But we have been given the gospel. We can be born again. We can receive eternal life by placing our faith and trust, believing in Jesus and in what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary. Redemption for sinners. So let's just say that most of us are believers today. We ask ourselves the question, how's our practice? See, our position is that we have been loved by God, we've been given eternal life, perpetual life, abundant life, but then we ask the question, are we practicing our position? If the coach moves you from shortstop to second base, 
You're not used to playing second base. He's going to give you all the tools that you need to be able to play second base, but you need to practice your new position. I literally, probably to my shame, literally took, was a participant in thousands of these things, thousands of what we call practices as a player, as a coach. We know what that means. We ask ourselves the question, when we talked about what the parallel is between us and what God does for us and what Christ has provided for us, and he's laid his life down for us, and we're to lay our lives down for the brethren, and this is what love looks like, how's our practice? How is our practice? I tell you, this is probably one of the greatest passages in the Bible for us to sit back and to thank the Lord for what He's done for us. I mean, and He's going to do this for Nicodemus down the road. We've got to wait. Got to wait a few more chapters. He's going to do this for Nicodemus. God's sovereign. This encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus was not by chance. Just like you hearing the gospel last week and this week is not by chance. God is sovereign over it all. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the gift of eternal life through Christ. We thank You of the synonymous nature of Jesus and the, this gift of uh, the gospel which results in eternal life. I pray for all of us today, not just for those who need to repent of their sin and trust in Christ, but for those of us who have done that, and, and as we examine our practice, how is our practice? Lord, help us as only you can. We thank you and we praise you for your glorious gospel. Thank you for this encounter that we're able to learn about, this true encounter that happened between Jesus Christ and this man named Nicodemus. And we're grateful, Lord, that ultimately Nicodemus does become born again. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.